Well, good morning again on this Thursday. You would turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. While you're turning there, and I'll give you plenty of time, we'll do a bit of an introduction. Or not an introduction, a review. I guess those two things are slightly different. We have been looking at the Lord's expression of Himself, the autobiography of the Lord, as He shares with us His own person. And how He does so in an orderly manner. First things first, second things second, third things third, and on we go. And a beautiful building up of the character of the Lord Himself. Now we made mention of this fact that in our Bibles, the typesetter has let us know this name Elohim in the Hebrew by giving us a capital G followed by a small O and a small D. Now you'll find a capital G also followed by a capital O and a capital D oftentimes in Scripture as well. But that's a different name. That is expressing the name Jehovah. So when we find the capital followed by the smalls, we find this name Elohim. And it's nice of the Lord to give us that sense of who He is. We find it also from the sense or the theme of the passage. And what we've been attempting to do is show how Scripture itself is the best commentary that there possibly is. And we've made mention that the, it's amazing how the Bible can shed light on the commentaries. And how when we come to a word like Elohim that, that ends with I am, that it's a masculine plural ending, but we knew that by reading elsewhere in Scripture because we find it many times. For example, in the word cherubim. And then we made mention how even this little word El at the beginning, the mighty God, is found oftentimes in Scripture. Making reference to, for instance, Psalm 22, where the Lord prophetically says, My El, my strength, my might, why hast thou forsaken me? And so we've kind of just taken a simple look at Scripture itself. Mentioned how it showed us the foregleam of Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and His mighty power. Remember then His mighty power expressed in creation. Firstly, when we come to Elohim. And then His mighty faithfulness expressed in His commitments to us. As He swore, as He committed Himself to us. So He is able and He is faithful. God can do anything, says the chorus, but fail. And in those two phrases we have an example, an idea of what this Elohim is. And then we've attempted to move on a little bit further. As the Lord Jesus as the, is the exegesis of the invisible God, of the eternal God. And how the Lord Jesus is not only the Jehovah of the Old Testament, He is also the El or the Elohim of the Old Testament. Now yesterday we picked up on this name El Elyon and gave ourselves the idea that no matter how high our estimate of God is and His power and His faithfulness, it still is not high enough. And he gives us this superlative, attempting to take us higher and higher yet. Now, I have it from a good source that the Israeli airline name, El Al, somehow comes, is derived from this very name, El Elyon. I'd like to substantiate that a little bit further, but it comes from a source from a far country. And they say that is true, that it was taken from that. This idea of the heights, of the uttermost, of the highest of all. And our God is above all, this El Elyon, the only true superpower. 
that the world has ever known or will ever know is our God. Now, we looked at two major places. The second one we really did not get to, where we find it in the Old Testament. The first is from the tongue of Jerusalem's first sovereign. In Genesis chapter 14, this king by the name of Melchizedek. The second, interestingly enough, and why don't we turn there, now that I have you back in Genesis, get a little exercise here, to the book of Isaiah chapter 14. And we have this in the context of Satan or Lucifer as he seeks to lift himself up. And you'll notice the detail of what name he chooses to use. Says in verse 13 of chapter 14 of Isaiah, Thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And here's our word in the latter part of this verse. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. This is our name, El Elyon. The Most High God. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. The Most High God. The Possessor of heaven and earth. We made mention briefly, and you'll find many different instances in the New Testament where the Lord Jesus is referred to as high. And we turn to Mark chapter 5, and we saw him in verse 7 as the Son of the Most High God, said some of those that actually served this Lucifer himself and fell into sin. The Lord Jesus is the Most High God, the possessor of heavens and of the earth. There's a lovely little Puritan quote that goes something like this. He who has everything and Christ has nothing more than he who has only Christ. We possess the possessor of the heavens and the earth. And we learned it from Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 as the Lord gives him a vision and says, I, even I, am thy exceeding great reward. So this name El Elyon again was a superlative, higher than the uttermost. Now we find many superlatives in Scripture. Phrases of superlatives. And I'll give you a couple of example, examples. In the early part of the Old Testament, we find the servant of servants being rendered. And you'll know ultimately who that is. We move a little bit further in our Old Testament. And we find this, this very phrase, the heaven of heavens. And that it cannot contain the Lord. And in Solomon's prayer, he goes beyond that and he says, if the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, in a sense, how, what a heartful the Lord must be. How could He possibly be here on earth? And then he tells us about a place that is called the Holy of Holies. There are holy places, we know about them, but there is a place which is the holiest of all. And in that Old Testament time, it was the place where the Lord Himself dwelt. The Holy of Holies, these superlatives that continue to be given. Notice that this same Solomon who uttered those wonderful words in his prayer goes on to give us another in the negative sense. And he says this, vanity of all vanities, he says. There's a superlative phrase again. Life without God is all vanity. But then he also takes us to a lovely book. And at the beginning of that book, we're given the title of it. 
It's not now the vanity of vanities. It's the song of all songs. There's no utterance that we can possibly say with joy, with the melody and the harmony and a song like no other songs unless it expresses our love for the Lord and speaks of the Lord Jesus and of God Himself. That's the song of all songs. And so it's no wonder that when we come to the New Testament, in Timothy and in the book of Revelation, we're reminded who is the King of kings, the blessed and only potentate, the Lord of all lords. And here's this idea then of El Elyon as he lifts us to the uttermost in our idea, in our concept of the Almighty God. And now we come to one of my favorite names in all of Scripture. Because he's going to take us from the highest of heights to the lowest of lows. From exaltation immediately then to humiliation. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 16 and begin reading a lovely story about an Egyptian servant. Again, in Abraham's family, remember that we made mention that in the, mat, that in the span of about seven chapters here in the book of Genesis, we're going to find out all of these different names, these El Elyon or El um, compound type names. And we come to our very next one here in chapter 16 after having spent time yesterday in 14 and 15. And let's begin reading in verse 6. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleases thee. Maybe we should back up just a bit in verse 1 to remind ourselves of the story, though certainly you know it well. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. And she had an handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Now, Abram and Sarai had already spent time in the presence of Elohim, the most faithful God, the God who follows His commitments, whose name will never be smeared by not doing what He says. But then they move in a different direction. And here in verse 5 then, Sarai says unto Abraham, My wrong be upon thee, I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived... I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, here we are again. Thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar... Sarai's maid, whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. Now, Ishmael, already you're beginning to pick up that 
these two little letters, E and L, whether it's at the end of a name or the end of a place like Penuel or Bethel or a name like Israel or whether it's at the beginning in names like Eli or Elizabeth or Elihu or wherever you find it, that it refers to God. These are things that are right in our stories in Scripture. And here we have the explanation given. An angel comes, says you will bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Ishmael. Now, we're not quite there yet, but that very phraseology rings quite true to our ears, doesn't it? When we get to the New Testament where we find another angel that's going to appear to another woman, that's going to express a name, that's going to give a definition, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction, says the angel. In verse 12, and he will be a wild man, his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou, God, seest me. For she said, notice this phrase, this is a phrase that I had not picked up on at all until just recently, but listen to this. For she said, have I also here looked after him? That seeth me? Wherefore the well was called Bir Lahairoi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Now look a little bit closer at that well's name, this Bir Lahairoi. At the very end of it we have ROI. And there's our name that we come to. It is the name Elroy, the God who sees. The name of the well then was given as Bir Lahairoi. The well of the God that liveth and that seest me. Now this title for the Lord is given to us now, not by a king called Melchizedek, but this time by an Egyptian slave called Hagar. And she sees the Lord seeing her. And she recognized the Lord providing for her. And she records it by naming the well, the well of the living God who sees me. Again, Abraham in his old age and Sarah turned to human strength to attempt to fill, fulfill the commitments and the promises of God. And coming to this once peaceful household, at least to some extent, there's a bit of trouble. Because a son is born not through the promised way, not through Sarai, but through another woman. And this woman raises herself up in that household to a position that was not hers. And there was a struggle. And she's cast out. And this woman goes into the desert alone, friendless, husbandless, perhaps a pagan woman, having nothing. And then it says, the angel of the Lord came unto her. And the angel of the Lord comes. He comforts. He cares. He counsels. He cheers with a promise. With a name that's going to be given to her son. That God hears me. I think of the story or the reference in Numbers chapter 6 that many times we 
use at weddings and big events like this. And it, it renders in this way, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make His face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up His countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And the story is evidently this concept that the Hebrew little child, if he were to sit upon the lap of his father, and he were to ask him for something or to attempt to get his attention, that if the father would look at him and look into his eyes with his eyes, then the little child knew that the father's attention was upon him. And if the father did not look at him but was looking off into space, the child knew that his attention was not on him. And very likely he would not answer that question or that desire. And you can almost see the picture of a little child, a little lad sitting on his Hebrew father's lap and reaching up and grabbing a hold of that big beard and pulling his face down and saying, look at me, look into my eye, listen to me, pay attention to me. And the Lord's promise to Aaron, to his people was this, you tell Aaron, you tell your people that his countenance is upon thee. You'll never see the profile of your God. His eye is upon thee. You're the pupil of His eye. The little student of His eye. The apple of His eye. In the New Testament, we read of the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow of turning, no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Every good gift, every perfect gift cometh down from Him. And that's the very same idea in the New Testament. That you'll never see the shadow of turning of His face. But His face and His eyes are always upon us. What a wonderful God we know. Now this simple phrase in Genesis chapter 16, the angel of the Lord, in almost every occasion in the Old Testament, when you find the definite article followed by angel, the messenger, it is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself we believe in pre-Bethlehem form. The angel of the Lord coming down, caring, concerned, stooping to a singular, heathen, slave of a family. I don't know if you could have found anyone lower in Abram's household at this stage. She was the only one that was thrust out, not counted worthy to be present. And she walks out into the wilderness, friendless, but she finds a friend that sticks closer than any other. And God, the very God of heaven, look at the contrast that we have. The El Elyon, the most glorious of all, is now stooping to be at the side of a husbandless woman. To meet her need and to care for her in the incarnate form of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. In the New Testament, we're given, and in the Old, a wonderful antidote for anxiety or struggle or suffering or whatever it may be. In two forms, it's right here in our passage. The first is that God sees. Never say that the Lord doesn't see. The Lord knows, doesn't He? And He always sees. He also hears. We learned it in Ishmael's name. He hears. What do we read of in Philippians chapter 4? The phrase goes like this, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known before God. 
And if I could yell a little louder, I would somehow, and if I were a yelling preacher, try to emphasize that a little bit more, that your requests are to be made known before God. This is the El Elyon that we're before when we stand at the foot of grace. And He promises to hear. It is a God who hears. A God who sees. A God who knows. If you're lacking in clothing or food or any other thing, this woman would have known what that meant. The Lord Jesus points out to us a Father in heaven that already knows that you have need of these things. And if Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like the lily of the field, then what do you think the Father in glory is going to do for you? They toil not nor spin, and yet God takes care of them. You see, the Father already knows. And because He knows, says the Lord Jesus in Matthew, pray. Now you say, what kind of sense does that make? What kind of sense does it make that if the Lord already knows that we're supposed to bring it before Him and pray? Because He loves communion. And He loves fellowship. And He loves closeness. And He loves to hear us say that, Lord, You're the only one that can fulfill that need. And we come to You to do it. We come to You alone to bless us. And to keep us. And to see Your countenance shine upon us. We're here, Lord, at Your feet. Because You're the only source. It's what Hagar could have said. That God that lives and that sees me. There's also another lovely antidote in the New Testament. Peter brings it to our attention. 1 Peter chapter 5, Casting all your care upon Him, because He cares for you. Hagar would tell us today that there's a Father in heaven. There's a God in heaven that cared for her and that cares for us and all of our needs. And sometimes our burdens are so large that we don't feel as though we can carry them to the Lord. We can't lift them high enough to cast them on the Lord. That's almost the example that's given. We cannot get them high enough to cast them on you, Lord. And then the psalmist comes to our health and he says, if they're too great, you can roll them upon the Lord. If they're too heavy, you can roll them upon Him. Casting all your care upon Him because it matters to Him about you. If it matters to the great God of the ages about Hagar, it matters to Him about you as well. And I believe that Peter is bringing before our attention this concept that back in chapter 2, where we read about this, that who His own self bore our sins in His own body on the tree, that if we're going to cast our burdens anywhere, we ought to cast them in the very same place that the God of heaven cast the very sins of the world and the Lord Jesus bore up underneath of them. He can bear up underneath the load of the very wrath of God against the sin of every man and woman that's ever lived. If He can bear up under that, do you think He can bear up under your concerns and your needs? It matters to Him about you. And so this is the God that is brought before our attention next in this story of Hagar. One of the greatest love stories that's ever been told right here in this chapter 16. Notice what happens then later, and we'll just very, very briefly move on. Elroy was not lost on Jacob. He's going to come very soon in our story in the book of Genesis. Now, here's a man that was in love with another woman. 
A woman that he had seen and looked kindly to him and he appreciated her. And he worked seven years for her. And then hidden beneath something, well, suddenly he gets another wife. And then he has to work another seven years. Twenty years he works for Laban. And it says that his wages were changed ten times. Do you ever think they were increased? Probably not. Ten times they were changed. And he bears up under this. And this is what Genesis 31 says. The Lord says to Jacob, I have seen all that Laban has done unto you. Elroy was not lost on Jacob. The nation of Israel, captive in Egypt, bricks without straw, killing their men children. Four hundred years had gone by. And here comes a man by the name of Moses. And then year after year after year, forty years, eighty years goes by. Would you have held it against them if they would have cried out and said, O Lord, do you see? And he says, Surely I have seen the affliction of my people. This is the God that we know as El Roy. I have seen, never get the idea that God does not see. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we've already spoken a bit about the angel of the Lord and the Lord Jesus Himself. But let's turn to Matthew. I incorrectly made a statement a couple of messages back regarding the order of the names in Matthew chapter 1. But let's turn to that Matthew passage and let our eyes fall here upon another angel coming to another woman. And in verse 22, now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. It's a slightly different miracle that we find here in the New Testament than we do with the Old when the child, a promise, was born in the Old Testament. A man and a woman dead in their ability to be able to have a child and the Lord does a wonderful miracle. And here, of course, we read of the virgin birth. A virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So much better, isn't it? Than merely to know that God sees us or an Ishmael that God hears us. Now it is in fact God with us. Emmanuel in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I like the way that Matthew rounds out his writing. He's a very good author and he starts with this thought on our minds that God with us. And he ends with the very same thought at the very end of the book. And the Lord Jesus Himself comes before our attention. And it ends with with this phrase, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And evidently the construction in that phrase goes something like this. It is the very same name, I am, but it's separated. It's as though it's a goemi, lo, I am with you, I am. As though we're surrounded by the very omnipotence and omniscience and all-seeing and all-caring God Himself. And He's with us always, even unto the end. That's His promise. He sees 
And His presence also is with us. I'd like you to think just very briefly about this idea again of exaltation and humiliation. We have it in the order of the Old Testament. A God who is infinitely high becomes infinitely nigh. Did you know that in probably, at least that I can think of, in almost every case, and we only have time to turn to one this morning, let's go to John chapter 13, but where we find these high statements concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, His position, His deity, His power, His control, we're going to find something else also that's true in God's economy. And that is that the greatest is the least, and the way to go up is to go down. John chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father, listen to this, had given all things into His hands, and that He was come from God, and that He went to God. Here's one of these high statements in the New Testament. You'll find another at the end of John chapter 3. You'll find them in many places. Philippians 2 would be a lovely one to turn to as well. But here we find the Lord Jesus Himself, all things committed into His hands. What does He do? We go from that exaltation to a Savior who then gets down at the feet of His own disciples and takes the place of another who should have been washing and wiping. You say to yourself, what would Mary have done in this position? This idea, this concept that we come to rising from supper and girding oneself and pouring water into a basin and washing the feet is not at all new by the time we get to this position in the New Testament. What would Mary have done? What would that nameless woman have done in this case? None of His disciples did it. And as they're sitting around discussing who is going to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high, at the right and the left hand, and as they're sitting around discussing how big they are, the one who is the biggest of all girds himself and gets on his knees and washes their feet. Yes, even Judas' feet. Judas' feet. And this is the love of an infinite God who is infinitely high and yet is intimately nigh and how much He loves you. How much He loves you. I'm an acquaintance back home. I'm learning that little children are, are sort of fun. You know, they're kind of like the magician of the household. When people come over to your house, I don't know why. It's not as though they can do a whole lot, but, you know, watch my daughter do this, in effect. That's what we say. You know, look at this. And we say, how does the fishy go? And she goes, you know, and... <laughs> And our favorite is, how does the sprinkler go? Because when I go out to change sprinklers, it goes, she's in her little backpack and I'm out changing sprinklers. And so she's our little trickster, right? And that's how we use her. They're like our little magician in the house. Well, this other acquaintance, his little son, they had this thing that they would do with him. They would say, and he was very small, just when he could finally stand up, they'd say, how big are you? And he would say, this big. And of course, a little child is fairly small. They raise their little hands. They don't come up. Hardly over their head, you know. Their arms aren't long enough yet, and they're this big. And you think it's so cute, because here's a child that knows that he's not very big, and a parent that realizes he's not very big, and it's very cute at that age. But it's not very cute in an adult. 
And so many people are living their lives in effect saying, I am this big, aren't we? We are this big. We are this able. This is who we are. But our God, knowing who He is, knowing that all things were committed into His hand, it says that He came down in an absolute humiliation. He gets down at the feet of those that He loves and He washes their feet. Turn with me very quickly, and we're almost out of time here, but to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 23. It's a very favorite passage of mine, especially with young people and at camps and things like this, and learning how to study the Bible and learning something of what the Lord Jesus is like as captain of the hosts of the Lord. But we have these men here who are David's mighty men. And sometimes we'll take a simple verse like verse 8, And let's just read it very quickly. But these be the names of the mighty men whom David had. The Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains. The same, it says, was Adano the Esnite. And he lifted up a spear against 800 whom he slew at one time, it says. And we'll go about the verse a little bit like this. We'll say, okay, what, what does it say? You know, just give me some things about it. And these young people will sit around. First of all, they're silent, right? Because nobody wants to say anything. But eventually they say, well, he sat in the seat. He was chief. He, he was a captain. He, his name was Adeno and, and so on. He, he held a, spe- a spear. And, and so we come to these things that it just says. It just tells us about the story of this man. And then sometimes we'll, we'll sit down together as a group and we'll say, This is what it says, but what does it assume about this man? If this man was number one of all of those in the army of David, David was a man who loved God, David was the beloved of God, had a heart after God, who would David have placed as number one? What must he have been like? I mean, this verse is so short. Here we have such a great man, and you say, why didn't he tell us more about him if he's the number one? We go to two, three, four, five, six, and we get a lot of information, but not much about this one. It's not even one verse. And we say, well, what must he have been like? And they'll come up with a lot of things like, well, he must have been strong. That's very true. He must have been faithful. That's very true. Must have been trustworthy, or he wouldn't have been in this position. But I will tell you this, I have never once, in every time that we've done that, heard anybody say that he must have been a servant. That he must have been humble. And as you begin to think about that, you say, that should have been the most obvious thing, should have been the first thing. Because the greatest is the least. He must have been a servant of servants to his men. But you see, that's not in our mind, is it? We don't get that concept very easily. Especially when we turn to the great God, who is the infinite God of the ages. How could He possibly humble Himself to become a man? To come through the door of His creation? To be made obedient unto that which was the judgment upon His creation for their sin? And become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so we have this wonderful stoop, this wonderful step by the Lord.
There's another woman in the New Testament. Not at all unlike Hagar in the Old Testament. And she comes walking in the heat of the day in need of water. Probably nobody around, but the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord is there. And she comes to find out that this was a man who knew everything that ever she did. I've heard Jabe say this before. She finally met the perfect man, number seven. Five husbands. He whom she now had was number six. She finally met the perfect messenger. And this woman, husbandless by the way, having need of everything, meets Elroy, the God who sees. And she advertises to a whole city, this woman of sin, come see a man that told me everything that ever I did and still loves me and still cares for me and can be trusted with what He knows about me. Isn't that a nice thing about the Lord? He sees, He knows, but He doesn't just share it with everybody. He can be trusted. And Elroy comes to that woman and she learns what it is to taste of the living water Not just the well of the God that liveth and seeth me, but this time it is the living water Himself that is going to bring her up unto everlasting life. These were women that knew what it was like to be alone and knew what it was like to trust the Lord Himself. We have four minutes. Let's turn to 2 Timothy as we conclude. A young lady and I were mentioning this yesterday afternoon and it comes to mind in 2 Timothy that there's really only one that knows what it's like to be alone. We might be able to sing very well, no, never alone. But the Lord Jesus couldn't necessarily sing that. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, We read in verse 16, at my first answer, says Timothy, No man stood with me, but all forsook me. Notice the italics there, all forsook me. I pray God, he says, that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear that I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Paul says, I was alone and all forsook me, but the Lord stood by me. And if there's ever one that knew what it was like to be alone, it was the Lord Jesus. All of His familiar friends, all of His disciples, Scripture says, they forsook Him and they fled. Prophetically in the Old Testament, It says of the Lord Jesus that He looked for comforters and He found none. I am an alien in my mother's household that says concerning the Lord Jesus prophetically. And then we hear that cry that we've already referred to. My strength, my God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? You see, the Lord Jesus knows what it's like to be alone. And the Lord Jesus knows you. And whether you're alone or whether you're in a crowd, He can come to you. And He can bear your trials. And He can care for you. And He can love you. 
and do whatever is necessary for you. Because you see, it matters to Him about you. This is the God that sees, that knows, that hears, that is infinitely and intimately interested in you as an individual, just like Hagar. What a God we love and we serve. Let's just pray. Our dear God, we're so thankful for the way in which You seek to bring us to the highest of heights. Oh, may our estimate grow concerning the greatness of our God. But Father, in some way, may we gain this knowledge that His greatness is seen in His humility and in His love. That the greatest of all would come to pay for all in the person of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we not have this disconnect between who He is and how we respond with actions and works which glorify our Father which is in heaven. That the world may see that we can let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. May that love expressed to us turn around and be expressed to Him. Him the source. His love the source in our our obedience, the obvious end, simply because we love Him. We thank You for Him and we pray in His name. Amen.